Our scripture again this morning comes from Hebrews, the ninth chapter, verses 11 through 14, and then 24 through 28. Now, last week we began talking about God's justifying grace. We talked about the um, hope that we find in Jesus Christ when we anchor ourselves to him. And this morning we're going to wrap up our uh, talking about justifying grace um, by talking about this idea of atonement. By talking about what exactly it is that happens um, when, uh, when Jesus Christ uh, died on the cross for us and how that is continually saving us. And so uh, Hebrews, the ninth chapter, verses 11 through 14, then 24 through 28. Hear now the word of our Lord. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This is the word of God. May it find its way into our hearts and lives this morning by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. Earlier this month, we celebrated a very important holiday one where we honor the people who have made us who we are, and we think about the important wisdom that has been passed on to us. I'm talking, of course, about Star Wars Day. You know, may the fourth be with you. Many of you took the time to wish me a happy Star Wars Day because you know how much I love Star Wars. I always have since I was a kid. See, when I was a kid, I had two dreams. One dream was to shoot webs from my wrist and swing through the skies of Manhattan like Spider-Man. And the other was to pilot the Millennium Falcon. Now, the web shooting thing hasn't panned out yet, 
Like, I have piloted the Millennium Falcon. And I don't mean to brag, but I may have even, I may have even saved the galaxy. I did it last February when the Nettleton family went to Disney World. See, it happened the morning we went to the new Star Wars land. It was amazing. It was my first time seeing it. You go through this tunnel and you come out the other side and there you are on the planet Batuu, surrounded by droids and stormtroopers and Wookiees. You go down this busy street and turn a corner and right there is a sight that takes your breath away. It's the Millennium Falcon. It's real life size. Every detail is perfect. Lights are blinking on it. You can hear the engine humming. I'm not exaggerating. I saw a grown man wipe a tear at the sight of the Millennium Falcon. Now, to board the Falcon, we passed through the garage and, uh, and we saw some droids doing repairs. Then we entered the docking bay and there was an alien smuggler named Hondo who gave us our mission. After receiving our orders, we boarded the Falcon. And it was just like I remembered from the movies. They even had that strange alien chessboard. I was totally geeking out. Now, it was time for me and my crew to take off. So we go down a hallway and through a door and we're there. The cockpit of the Millennium Falcon. Everything was exactly the way I imagined it. They even had the dice hanging from the, you know, the thing. <laughs> now, as a family, we discussed our position, you know, who would be the gunners, the engineers, so forth. And I played it really cool. But inside, I was going, pick me. I want to be the pilot. Please, please, let me be the pilot. Now, it turned out no one wanted the responsibility. So Crystal and I uh, uh, sat down and we were the pilots. Crystal was in the Han Solo seat and I was in the Chewy seat, not, not just because of the hair. Um, it was actually the seat I wanted to be in uh, because it meant that when the time came, I would be the one to punch the ship into hyperdrive. Now, let me tell you what I knew, like intellectually. I knew that I wasn't on the planet Batu. I knew that I was in the middle of a drain swamp in Orlando, Florida. I knew that everything I was seeing was built by Disney Imagineers three or four years ago. I had seen the steel beams and hard hats on a previous trip. I knew that I wasn't actually on a large spaceship that I had seen out front. I knew that I had been led through a series of tunnels to a large show building. I even knew that, that, that the alien that had given us our orders was an audio animatronic. And that the cockpit I was sitting in wasn't the cockpit. I knew it was about uh, one of ten that looked exactly the same. I knew that everything I was seeing outside of the windows of the cockpit was a projection on a screen. I knew all of that intellectually up here. But I'm telling you, when the voice came over the intercom and told me to punch the falcon into hyperdrive, and I pushed that button and saw the stars turn into these dazzling streaks of light, I was transported to a galaxy far, far away. And I was saving it from the evil galactic empire. Now, believe it or not, I didn't come here to talk about Star Wars. But I did want to describe that ride experience 
because it's the closest thing I can think of to what the experience of the Jerusalem temple was like. See, it's, it's easy to think about the temple flatly and intellectually and talk about what this or that thing represented theologically. But this morning I want us to consider the experience. What it was like to walk into the temple and be transported somewhere far, far away. See, ancient temples were meant to be microcosms of the entire universe. They were a place where the worshiper was transported from their ordinary life into the heavens where the gods lived. It was where they could view and participate the things that were going on just behind the curtain of reality. And the Jerusalem temple was no different. The Jerusalem temple was a physical representation of the universe. It was divided into three sections. The outer courtyard represented the earth and sea. The altar was made to resemble a mountain. It wasn't made of marble or gold, but rough, unhewn stones. The priests would climb to the top of it by a series of steps to offer the sacrifice. Below the altar was the bronze sea. It was a large bathing pool held up by pillars. It looked exactly the way ancient people imagined that the ocean it was a large circle of water held aloft by the pillars of the deep. From there, the priest could pass through an open curtain into the sanctuary. The sanctuary represented the visible heavens with its stars and moon and sun. It was there that the large menorah burned day and night, representing the heavenly lights. And it was there that the incense burned, representing the prayers of the people and the smoke of the sacrifices entering up into the heavens. Here the priest drew near to God on behalf of the people. Behind them was a large curtain called the veil. It was always drawn closed. It depicted stars and angels. It was embroidered with four colors of thread representing the four elements. Scarlet for fire blue for air, purple for sea, and white linen for the earth. So the veil represented the boundary between the material world and the immaterial world. All that is visible and that which is invisible, just beyond the stars. Were you to pass through that veil, and few ever did, you would enter into the inner sanctuary the Holy of Holies. This room represented the invisible heavens, the place where God was enthroned, surrounded by his angels. There resided God's mercy seat, flanked by two large angels. Everything was overlaid with gold. Being in the Holy of Holies was being in God's heavenly throne room. Now, the Hebrews would have known intellectually that they were in a building built with human hands and that the priest wasn't actually entering heaven when he disappeared behind a curtain. But the experience would have immersed and transported them. To walk into the temple was to walk into creation itself, to pass from the earth through the heavens and into the very throne room of God. But the temple wasn't just a good representation of the heavens and the earth. 
It was a place where the immaterial and the material overlapped. The things that happened in the temple were believed to be of cosmic significance. So it's here that the parallel between the temple and my experience at Disney World ends. No matter how much entering the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon may have felt like entering the Holy of Holies, I knew it wasn't real. I knew that I was participating in a glorified arcade game, that none of the things that we accomplished there as a family would have any impact on the galaxy for real. In the Jerusalem temple, they played for keeps. The things that happened there were of significance. They had to be done just right for the sake of the entire universe. See, the temple was the arena in which human beings could interact with the cosmic forces. Yes, they could encounter God, but they could also deal with the cosmic threat called sin. See, for the ancient Hebrews, sin was a threat to the whole universal order. They understood that God had created the universe to be good so that his presence could rest within it. They also understood that the inclination of the human heart is evil and that human disobedience pushed God out of this cosmos and made it profane. Sin creates a separation between humanity and God. So dealing with sin meant re-sanctifying the universe so that it could once again be filled with God's glory. See, we tend to think of sin in individual terms. We say, Jesus forgave me of my sins. You know, I need to forgive her because of what she did to me. It's all individual. As a result, we see sin as a series of isolated incidents. Death by a thousand cuts. And so the whole business of forgiveness from God almost seems unnecessary to us. We say, why does anything or anyone need to die? Why can't God just get over it? But the ancient Hebrews thought about sin very differently. They understood sin as something which affects the whole community. See, when one person is disobedient, it brings guilt on everybody. Sin spreads like a disease. Its effects ripple outward and destroys the whole community. So, the whole community has to deal with it. Every sin is a cosmic threat. Try to imagine one night a man has too much to drink and he gets behind the wheel. And he's drunk and he T-bones a car and inside of that car is a teenage boy who dies instantly. Now imagine, and this isn't how such things work, but imagine he goes before the judge and the judge says, I'm going to have to execute you for murder unless you can um obtain forgiveness from Everyone you've wronged by this action. Now, of course, the one person you've wronged the most is dead. But leave that aside. Who else would the man need forgiveness from? A grieving father and mother, certainly. Also extended family. But how about the kids that have lost their best friend or their boyfriend their senior year in high school? Or their witnesses? Will they be traumatized? 
How about his future wife or the children they would have had that now won't exist? How could he possibly attain their forgiveness? Maybe this boy would have gone off to college and then to medical school. Maybe he would have become a police officer or, or a firefighter. How would the man go about obtaining forgiveness from every uh, a person that, that, that the kid may have saved? Or maybe there is something only this boy would have been able to create. Some piece of art, a great business idea, or, or, or a new invention. The effects ripple out into the future in every direction. But they ripple into the past as well. See, every human being is a culmination of a thousand generations of hopes and dreams. Did someone come over on a Mayflower or, for that matter, a slave ship? Would this boy be the continuation of their legacy? Is the chain now forever broken by the death of an only son? See, one bad night has cosmic consequences. There is no way the man could possibly do what the judge requires. He stands condemned. See, this is our predicament. The Hebrews had it right. Sin isn't just an individual issue. It's not just between me and the person next to me. If the Garden of Eden taught us anything, it's that one act of disobedience can affect the entire universe. Because God gives us freedom to make our own decision. We have the power to desanctify the universe he has sanctified. We can make profane what he has made holy. We can make evil what he has created to be good. To ask God to simply get over it would be to have him abandon his creation. To have him leave us to the hell that we have kindled with our own selfishness rather than giving us the means to set it right again. For the Hebrews, that means was the temple. Once a year, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would represent all of humanity before God. And he would do what needed to be done to purge sin from the universe. That's what Kippur means, purge. And he would restore sanctity. The ceremony had three steps. First came the purification of the priest. The high priest was put into seclusion a week before the ceremony. This way he wouldn't accidentally encounter anything unclean. The night before he would fast and pray and read scripture so that his heart and mind would be on nothing but God. Then, before the ceremony, he would bathe and put on a simple white tunic. This is to represent that he is standing in the place of naked humanity. He is not just a high priest, he is all of us, doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Next comes the sacrifice. Two animals are sacrificed. A bull is sacrificed for the sins of the priest, and a ram is sacrificed for the sins of the people. The two animals are slaughtered atop the mountain altar, and their blood is collected into a cup. Then comes the purification of the temple. The high priest does this by sprinkling blood. 
He starts in the Holy of Holies because that's where forgiveness begins, in the throne room of God. He sprinkles the blood of the ram seven times, and then the blood of the bull seven times. Then he goes out into the outer sanctuary and he does the same thing seven times, seven times. And he does the same thing in the courtyard. In all, the blood is sprinkled seven times, seven times to represent that the heavens, both visible and invisible, and the entire earth have been purged of sin. Once the purification is complete, the priest bathes and once more puts on his royal vestments. A goat that represents the sins of the people is driven out from the temple and into the wilderness. Then the burnt offering is made and the ritual is complete. So year after year in the temple, the cosmic power of sin is broken and the world is made good again. The people are forgiven. And the universe is saved until we mess up again. We have to do it all over again the next year. See, according to Hebrews, this is the problem with the purification ritual. It's an endless cycle. Rinse and repeat. It never seems to do any lasting good. Humanity is still imperiled by its disobedience. In reality, Sin still waits at the end of the day. It still wins. Its effects still cascade through the ages. Like a theme park ride. On a theme park ride, nothing is really accomplished. It may seem like we're saving the universe while we're participating. We go up all the hills, we go through all the loops, but in the end, we're right back where we started. We leave and return to the real world. And no points have been put on the board. It still feels like the evil empire is in control. But our passage this morning proclaims the good news that Jesus didn't enter into the theme park version of heaven. Or as he puts it, Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. But he entered into heaven itself. In other words, Jesus made the ritual real. See, like the high priest, Jesus represents us before God. But he doesn't need to be purified. He is pure. Having emptied himself of his divinity, he represents naked humanity, doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He didn't climb a fake mountain above a bronze sea. He climbed the real hill to Calvary. He died, offering his own blood while we all looked on. But then he passed through the heavens to the very throne of God, and now he brings forgiveness and newness of life by his blood. Because of what Jesus did, the world is being made good again. It is being made holy again. The ripples of sin are being reversed, and the cycle is being broken once and for all. I say being, because that's the beautiful part. See, the ritual is not complete. Jesus has only just disappeared behind the veil of reality. That's what I find so intoxicating and wonderful about the image of Jesus as high priest. 
See, when we call Jesus high priest, we are acknowledging the mystery of faith that we proclaim each communion Sunday. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We live between the second and third mystery, don't we? That Christ is risen. He is alive and at work in our lives here and now. And that he will come again. Like the priest who after sacrificing the animals continues into the sanctuary and then passes behind a veil of angels and stars to represent us before the throne of God. Jesus died and now ascended through the heavens into the throne room where he intercedes on our behalf. The drama is unfolding as we speak. Soon we believe he will emerge from behind the curtain of stars and angels, not clothed in naked humanity, but in power and glory. He will drive sin out of the universe and renew all things once and for all. See, we often talk about being saved in the past tense, right? We say, when were you saved? I do it too. I'll say, I was saved at a campfire when I was 13, right? But the author of Hebrews would say, we are being saved. The drama is unfolding right now as we speak, just behind the curtain of reality. Jesus is interceding on our behalf. We are being made more holy each day. The earth is becoming more and more like it should each day. We are being saved. And someday that transformation will be made complete. The work will be done. The heavens and the earth will be renewed and the curtain will be gone. There will be no temple because God will dwell with this people once for all. But right now, there's still time to get in on the action. Right now, if you're not a part of that plan, you can anchor yourself to the one who is just behind the curtain. Your sins can still be brought to the throne room because he is still interceding on our behalf. There's still time to climb aboard, but you need to act fast because we're about to kick this thing into hyperdrive and save the universe once and for all. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.